0: It's good to be with you this morning, church. It's good to be able to read God's Word, to sing God's Word, to pray God's Word, to give in response to God's Word this morning. We are in the series entitled Upside Down World, or World Upside Down. And we have been looking at how we navigate living in a world that has already been turned upside down. That's a, a given. Nobody argues that. But we're also looking, how do we as Christians actively turn the world upside down with the gospel, with how the gospel changes, not only how we think and believe, but how we live. And two weeks ago, Pastor Bill preached on the great commission, I'm sorry, the great commandment, loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor. And last week and this week, are really a follow-up to that, last week, Pastor Brady preached on how do we, how do we uh, relate, how do we love people with our words, with wise words, That's loving our neighbors well. Today, the message is an extension of the Great Commandment as we look tangibly, physically, how do we love our neighbors? How do we love our neighbors? And we're trying to answer this question, at least to start Who is my neighbor? That's the title. Who is my neighbor? We live in a world that is incredibly polarized and polarizing right? Everyone is lining up behind their cause, their issue, or their candidate. And that's fine on one level, right? We're different people. We're wired differently. We have different passions. But as Christians, we must ask the question, no matter where you stand on these various issues, how will you treat the people who disagree with you? How will you treat the people who are different than you? That's the problem, isn't it? It's not that we differ. We're always going to differ until Christ comes and gives us the mind of Christ. But until then, how do we act? How do we speak? How do we treat people who are different, who don't agree with us? In other words, a church that is committed to declaring and displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ, who should we be reaching out to? Who should we be loving? Who should we be serving? Those who believe like us? Those who look like us? Those who think like us? Who vote like us? You see, so many people right now are asking this question that the lawyer was asking. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor so I can know who to love, who to care for, who to include? But wouldn't you know? This passage is in Scripture. It happened. Jesus engaged on a lawyer, an expert on the law, in this very question. And in response to this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus gave one of the most famous parables that we know. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's a popular phrase even today. Even among people who have no faith, who don't believe in Christianity, uh, it's a popular phrase. We have hospitals named Good Samaritan Hospital. We have laws that are called Good Samaritan laws that protect people who help out uh, to intervene in a crime. When someone acts heroically, we call them a Good Samaritan. And so because of the positive connotation uh, of that phrase, I'm actually afraid that most of us have lost the shock value, the original shock value when Jesus told this story. Please try to hear it the way the original hearers would have heard it and it starts with a man it says verse 25 a lawyer meaning an expert in god's law the mosaic law this is, this is a bible scholar he's been to seminary and he asked jesus a question of supreme importance actually he knows what he asked him he gets up to put him to a test They're all sitting down, and this man stands up, which is sort of an antagonistic kind of posture, uh, but Jesus is okay with that. He's, He's dealt with it before. And he asked Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How can a person know they will live with God forever? That's a question that every one of us needs to wrestle with and answer. But notice his motive was to put him to the test there's an unhealthy motivation here he wasn't genuinely seeking an answer he he had an ulterior motive but there's another problem with the the question and how he phrased it notice what he says what must I do to inherit eternal life the question is actually self-contradictory How do I know? Because on the one hand, he acknowledges eternal life is inherited. You don't earn an inheritance usually. It's just given from parents or grandparents. It's just bestowed upon the next generation. It's a gift. And yet he says, what must I do? How can I know that I lived a good enough life to be able to earn this thing, this eternal life? And as we know, many people today, maybe some of you watching, maybe some of you here today, believe that if you live a moral life, that at the end of your life, if you're good, if you, if you put your good on one side of the scale and your bad on the other side of the scale, that, that God will kind of weigh your life out. And if your good outweighs your bad, then God will let you into heaven. You will gain eternal life. I would submit to you that nearly every world religion is based on some uh some kind of principle that is rooted in this good outweighing your bad the lawyer knew the answer to the question already when jesus asked him what's written in the law you see the man asked jesus a question and jesus asked him a question back well you tell me what is written in the law in other words, how would you summarize God's law, in which God says, "This is how you ought to live," and the man knows this, and he, he maybe even trying to set Jesus up so he can tout, "I know God's law well. I know what God's word says. He's been studying the Torah since he was a child, and especially these two these two verses he quotes, Deuteronomy six, four and five, the Shema." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ever since he was a child, he would would repeat that morning and evening every pious Jew would have at the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Every Jew knew this is the heart of God's law. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18 where God commands, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The the man says, this is a summary of God's law. And maybe he even heard Jesus teaching the great commandment before. Maybe he had heard that Jesus put those two together. And so he says those two things and knows what Jesus says. You have answered correctly. Verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All you have to do, Jesus says, is obey these two commands and you will inherit eternal life. Meaning, if you will love God with every fiber of your being, every moment of your life, everything internally and externally from your actions to your words to your motivations to your desires to your dreams. And if you will love people around you just as much as you love yourself, if you're just as diligent in providing for their needs as you are diligent in providing for your own needs, if you will obey these two commands flawlessly, you will be granted eternal life. Oh great, that's easy. That's all it is? Two commands? Instead of 613, wow! Jesus answers this lawyer, don't miss this, because you might be wondering, wait a minute, I thought you can't get saved by the law. I thought you can't uh, earn eternal life. Jesus is answering this lawyer's question with a legal answer. If you fully satisfy the demands of God's law, you will live. But the guy knows and we know this is problematic. It doesn't take a Bible scholar like him to realize, who can love God and others like that? It's impossible. No one has fully obeyed these two commands except the man for whom this lawyer was looking at. I think Jesus is laying down the gauntlet. He's offering an impossible challenge designed to drive this guy to his knees in humility and admit, I I can't do that. I'm a Bible scholar. I've studied the law my entire life. And in, in my heart of hearts, I know I'll never be able to do that, Jesus. So now what? That would be a great response, which likely would have led to an invitation to follow him. But the lawyer wasn't there. He wasn't there. So verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor then? He knew he couldn't do either of the commands. And so he seeks to, he takes the second one and says, let me narrow this command in such a way that that I could justify myself. Meaning, if I can make the circle of my neighbors, if I'm going to draw a circle and say, these are neighbors and these are non-neighbors, if I can draw a circle and make the circle narrow enough, right? If this is my neighbor, then man, I'm in trouble. But if I can, if I can kind of scrunch my neighborhood, so to speak, down to a manageable uh, chunk where a number of people, where it's only a few that are in there, then maybe I could stand before God justified because I could love this number of people that way, but not this number of people that way. Who is my neighbor? Let me justify myself. Let me base it on my own righteousness. It's a classic works-based salvation. Give me a list, Jesus.
1: Who's my neighbor?
0: He's asking, who do I have to love? Right? It's love your neighbor. So that's what he's asking. Just put in those terms. Who do I have to love? This question is an admission of guilt, isn't it? He is implicitly admitting he cannot obey Leviticus 19.18. He cannot love his neighbor as himself. As that that command stands, no qualifications, he can't do it. If this command stands open-ended, love your neighbor, then he knows that means anyone could be his neighbor, and that seems utterly absurd to him. As someone who has taught his whole life that your neighbor is a fellow Israelite. And anyone else is not a neighbor. You see, his question assumes that some people are non-neighbors and therefore don't need to be loved. And we make that same assumption today. We put people in categories and we would never admit this. But even as Christians, we stumble into this flaw, into this flawed thinking and mindset that if I can declare, if I can determine whether they stand on the side of whatever it is, the side of truth, the side of Christianity, the side of humanity, the side of whatever you think that, that issue is, if they can stand here, then we're neighbors. If not, they're not my neighbor. And if they're not my neighbor, I don't have the same responsibility to that person as they do this person. who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, I'm not going to answer that. Let me tell you a story, actually, a parable that will prove to you that your question is entirely the wrong question. And he opens up the parable by saying there was a, a great tragedy. Verse 30, A man was going down. He just jumps right into the story. A man was going down. We're not told anything about his race, about his social status, about his uh, circumstances. It just says he's traveling the 17-mile road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, 3,300 feet over 17 miles. That's over 200 feet a mile. Not the easiest of roads to travel, and it was windy, and it was surrounded by caves, and it was, and bandits would often hide there. In fact, this road was famously known as the Bloody Way, and so it was for this man. He was stripped, beaten, and left. Notice Jesus' language: half dead. End of verse thirty. Half dead. He looked dead. When someone is half dead, it's because they look dead. He didn't have much time. He's literally dying. Every breath he's, he's, he's holding out for dear life. And the scene suddenly changes because Jesus says, now by chance, by chance, a priest was going down that same road. Hallelujah, a man of the cloth someone with morals, a servant heart, someone who cares. You you get the irony that a preacher is having to preach this, right? (laughs) Everyone in Jesus' audience would have assumed, and and maybe even sighed a sigh of relief when he said, a priest or a Levite was on the way, who's, who's just an assistant to a priest, that they would offer help. Make no mistake. It says the priest and the Levite, when they saw him, Jesus doesn't allow for the fact that they were like, I I didn't, I didn't even know he was there. When they saw him dying, they intentionally moved to the other side of the road and passed by. Got to get on their way. They're busy. These were religious men, upstanding citizens, exactly the kind of people they would have expected to stop and help someone in need, but they did nothing. They did not think a half-dead man on the side of the road qualified as a neighbor. You
1: see that? They did no harm,
0: right? They did not cause any harm. But they failed to help someone who was already harmed. It's called the sin of omission. As Christians, we can get so um, we can be so diligent in a good way to not sin out of a sin of commission, don't do anything wrong, that we actually might fall into the trap of religion, that we actually, when we do nothing wrong, we could still do nothing right.
1: And the problem is, and we see
0: here, that even religion can get in the way and maybe, arguably, is a greater hurdle to demonstrating God's compassion for people. Because you can be so busy serving the Lord that you miss opportunities to to help others. Or you can think that you are so spiritual, having done your duty in another way, in another area of life, in another ministry, that you miss the, the, that you miss that you still have the opportunity and the duty in this area. I'm a preacher. I, I'm studying God's word. I don't have time to help this person over here. You, you're involved in this ministry with children. You don't have time to help those who have maybe a, a mental health issue. These men were clearly bad neighbors. We're bad neighbors when we avoid people in obvious need. We're bad neighbors when we are too selfish with our time to be interrupted or inconvenienced by someone else's problems. We're bad neighbors when we have little concern for those who are dying physically or spiritually. Let me ask you this and maybe you can ask yourself this later today. What excuses have you been making for not helping hurting people around you? I have a long list of excuses that I like to go to.
1: And they're an indictment on my soul. So far there have been two men who were
0: supposed to help but didn't. Jesus is setting this up brilliantly because now everyone is waiting for a hero. Likely they're they're thinking, if those guys those you're, okay you're right they're priests you're right we think they're they're, they're compassionate but no you know who's going to be the hero an ordinary Jew someone and, and it's gonna it's gonna smack against the proud clergymen and and to shame them no verse 33 but a
1: Samaritan. Maybe Jesus lingered after that word. For shock value.
0: As he journeyed, came to where the man was, the half-dead man who was still there. And when he saw him, he had compassion. You see, even my neighbor is my enemy. Sorry, even my enemy is my neighbor. The, f- the first thing I said was probably unbiblical. The second thing is, uh, is biblical. No one would have expected this. Samaritan and Jews... We're bitter enemies and had been for centuries. This wasn't like a, a, oh, over the last couple of decades they had their squabbles, no. Hundreds of years as Samaritans were considered ethnic half-breeds and they had intermarried with Assyrians many years ago and they were considered uh, unclean and, and they, they were not pure Jews and they, they rejected most of the Torah. In fact, they only accepted the first five books of the Torah and they, they even set up their own place of worship outside of Jerusalem, which is anathema to any Jew. And so to a Jew, these were wicked half-breed heretics. For a Jew, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. And I just wonder, like, okay, in our current context, what would, who would our culture, or who would you and I despise so deeply that if, if they were the hero, we would be sort of shocked, left uneasy? Maybe a white supremacist coming down the road and helping... Coming to the aid of someone who's a a Black Lives Matter protester, or vice versa. Take your pick. Maybe a strict fundamentalist Muslim who holds to Sharia law stops to help an evangelical Christian. The people would have been aghast. A Samaritan? A Samaritan giving the ultimate example of what it means to be a loving, caring neighbor? Notice what this Samaritan does. Verse 33 He sees him and he has compassion. The word compassion is this really rich word in the New Testament that means literally, it means your guts, your intestines. It's the, the center of, of, of tenderness and sympathy. He had tenderness, pity, sympathy for the one who was suffering. In other words, there had to be an impact on his heart. But we, we know love starts with your heart, but it ends with your hands. Love doesn't just mean do no harm. It means doing good. And so, verse 34, after having compassion in his deep within him, he went to help him. He went to him, notice, went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil in wine, set him on his own animal, took him to an inn to care for him. He cared for the, he went to him and helped him, verse 34, verse 35. He cared for the man in a costly and vulnerable way. This man was riding his own donkey. Now he's got to walk the rest of the way because this, this, this injured man is on his own donkey. He's using up his own bandages, his own oil, his own wine. He goes to the, this inn and cares for him there and then still has to go somewhere and says, I'll pay you even more money to take care of whatever his needs are. That is, he's, he's, he's putting himself out there. He's being vulnerable because he doesn't know if this guy will even appreciate it. If this guy gets well and realizes a Muslim helped him, If this guy realizes a white supremacist helped him, a Black Lives Matter helped him, if he realized that, would he be angry? Would he be upset? What is he going to be like? This guy doesn't, it doesn't matter to him. He sees the need and he realizes he can help with this need. The Samaritan stopped to fix a mess he did not cause.
1: I want you to think about that.
0: He helped fix a mess that he didn't cause. If you think about the issues going on today, I mean like big issues, millions of babies being aborted every year, the the unbelievable economic and emotional hardship caused by this pandemic, people dying, people getting sick, people losing jobs, the racial pain, Intention and injustice felt by many in our country around the world. You say, I didn't cause any of those issues. Those issues are caused by, by people who are making poor choices or, or by unfortunate events that are beyond my control or, or those issues happen because of things that happened many years ago. But you see, the cause is not the point here. There is space to engage on what caused issues. But in this scenario, the urgency demands action even without trying to figure out the cause. Notice the Samaritan did not go up to the man and say, what happened? Did you, did you do something? Why didn't you give the man his, the money? He didn't ask that. Or he also didn't think, yep, yeah, Jews, that's what they do to each other. He also didn't think, a Jew? Ugh! He also didn't think, you know, it's probably because you're a sinner that this happened to you. And I'm not getting involved in that kind of stuff. He has no idea the cause, and yet he helped fix a mess he did not
1: cause. May that be true for us
0: as Christians today. Notice how Jesus concludes. He does not say, who's your neighbor? He doesn't answer that question. Notice his question. Which of these do you think
1: prove to be a neighbor?
0: The answer is obvious. But notice (laughs) verse 37. This lawyer this brilliant scholar still cannot say Samaritan. Who proved to be a neighbor? Jesus asks him. And he goes, the one who showed mercy. It's true. And Jesus looks right at him and says, go and do likewise. That's it. Simple command. Go and do likewise. You see, the real question is not, who is my neighbor? The real question is, who am I neighboring? I pray you get this. I pray you see that the title of my sermon is the wrong
1: question. The
0: parable doesn't teach us who is our neighbor. It teaches us what it looks like to be a neighbor. Because you can't define who is or isn't a neighbor. You can't define it. Jesus doesn't define it. God doesn't define it in his law. He simply says, you can only be a neighbor. Listen, a person becomes your neighbor when you treat them in a neighborly way. And instead of wasting time coming up with precise definitions, we need to get to work and help the people right in front of us. Because here's the point of the parable. Christians are called to show compassion to anyone in need, even if it's your enemy. Because even your enemy is your neighbor. That's Jesus' point. There's no lines you can draw. And whenever you do it, you have failed in loving your neighbor. As soon as you draw a line, I don't care if, you don't, if, you, if you're not even having a chance to not love someone. All you gotta do is draw the line. That's a fail. You're becoming a Pharisee. You're becoming a lawyer. Becoming a Sadducee. You're becoming a scribe. You're becoming the one that Jesus stands up later and condemns because of lines that they draw. Do you have compassion for those in need around you? Whether whether it's a physical or emotional or a spiritual need? Or, and I fear this is true for many of us, have we become so calloused to the immense suffering that we see around us that it actually numbs us to all of it? I can't help with the big picture stuff, and so I throw
1: my hands up in the little stuff I can do right now. We can't throw our hands up. Jesus doesn't let us
0: get away with that. Listen, I'm not saying that we, we're not going to disagree still. The Samaritan is still a Samaritan. For all we know, he worshipped at the wrong place. That's still, he's still different. And he still may be wrong in his theology and everything else. But when, there's, when it comes to how do I love my neighbor... You don't, have to, you don't have to meet my litmus test of theology. When it, comes to, when it comes to becoming a member of Christ's Church, absolutely. When it comes to loving your neighbor, Who are you let me ask you a couple questions. Who were you able to help but, but, have been, but have been trying to ignore?
1: How will you respond next time you meet someone in need?
0: Is there at least one way, one ministry that you can be involved in to help hurting people, whether locally or globally? We're called to show compassion and mercy in such a way that we get involved in situations we didn't cause and we help people that we think are, quote, undeserving. But, that's actually not even the heart of this parable. That's not even the main point. That's the main kind of um, uh, moral sense of this, kind of on the, on the horizontal level. That's the principle. But there's a vertical dimension to this parable. The parable shows us our deep need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because remember, the man wanted to know what must he do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. And Jesus gave him the answer found in the law. But he should have known loving God perfectly and loving people fully was impossible. He should have known that. Because let's be honest, who is able? Who among us is able to show compassion to all of our neighbors? It can get exhausting, can it? Right? I haven't dealt with the hard side of it. Let's be honest, you want to help someone in need, it it is exhausting. It, and people take advantage of you. And I know some of you right now, and that's the first thing you would say, and I would say is, good grief, I tried, and you know what happened. Lots of damage. Or our selfish hearts struggle. We, we have such a high standard that we're like, man, they're, they're, they do not meet the standard for me to engage. The problem with, the, with what the man is engaging here with Jesus is that the law commands us to obey but it can never empower us to obey it is impossible to justify ourselves and earn eternal life that jesus is wanting this, this man to understand while you are to go and do likewise you need to understand it is impossible for you to justify yourself by considering yourself a good neighbor that's the point of the parable we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we need to understand and believe and rest in, trust in the good news that that Jesus gave his life, and through his life and death and resurrection, God offers to us law-breaking sinners, grace to those who are not good neighbors. This story points us to Jesus. You see, if we're to answer Jesus' the lawyer's initial question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then the answer is, you can't do anything except fall at the feet of Jesus and cry for mercy. You must believe, Christian, you must believe, whoever's listening today, that Jesus was not just a good neighbor, he is the ultimate neighbor. He is the ultimate good Samaritan. Because, here's what I mean, Jesus doesn't just look down on us and see us half dead. He looks down from heaven and sees us completely dead in our sin, Ephesians 2. We are miserable. We are his enemies. And we have rebelled against God. And Jesus doesn't say... I'm gonna go down, Father. I'm gonna go down and help them for a few days. I'm gonna fix them up a little bit, put them on my donkey, and and take them, and, and they'll be okay. No, Jesus, in unthinkable mercy, says, Father, I know the plan. I am going to step out of heaven and enter into the back door of this world as a little baby, and I'm going to have to deal with all the humanity and all the junk and all the everything that humans have to deal with, and I'm going to live this perfect life and deal with unimaginable suffering, and I'm going to go to the cross and be killed, crucified, not for my sin, Lord, but because of their sin, and he dies for your sin and my sin. He doesn't just fix us up. He literally takes our place. He dies our death. Listen, the gospel is this. Jesus heals us with his love. His love on the cross displayed, which also happens to be God's justice, because sin had to be paid for. Punishment had to be made, or God would not be just. But he is both just and the justifier of those who put their trust in Him. And so right now, if you, can, if you will turn from your sin and receive Jesus as your Savior, you have the gift of eternal life. If you're listening today, do you need to trust Jesus right now as your Savior? There's nothing more important. Nothing. Nothing. And now, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you say, okay, what now? I, I think the command still stands. You go and do likewise. You help those in your community who have real needs. You go help your elderly neighbor with their lawn or their house project. You get involved with at-risk youth even though it's going to cost you time and energy and you may not even know if they care that you want to do this and you're not doing it to fix them, you're doing it to love them and you go share the gospel with your coworker, which might mean many nights of hanging out and building relationship and talking about their lives and, and not seeing them as a project but as someone to love genuinely and love shares with them the greatest truth ever that Jesus came to save sinners of which we are the worst. As Paul says it, you do it and you go doing knowing that god will give you the strength and the compassion to do so because when you accept the gospel jesus goes to work on your heart and he transforms your heart to look more like his heart and he empowers you to do what only he can do through you to love people who are different even your enemies to allow yourself to be inconvenienced even if it's costly in order to share and to show the love of christ So, who are you neighboring? That's the question. Who are you neighboring? We have this beautiful challenge to turn the world upside down with this simple yet radical call to love our neighbors. Who are you neighboring? Let the neighbor be you. Let's pray. Father, we know that Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We thank you for the truth that Jesus is the ultimate Samaritan
1: who rescues
0: those who are in desperate need. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one Who neighbored perfectly for people like us who fail in our neighboring? Lord, I thank you that the call is not for us to neighbor perfectly in order to justify ourselves and earn eternal life. I thank you for the call to humble ourselves and receive the gift of eternal life through your Son. And through the gift of the gospel, the power of the gospel, we can be changed. Set free, made new, sent on a mission. This church has a beautiful calling and history and future. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what you have done. And I'm just asking, Lord, for you to, to fan into flames that calling, fan into flames that vision. May we look in the face of evil, in the face of suffering, in the face of fear, and may we say, we will not bow. We will go, and we will sacrifice, and we will lay down our lives because we believe Jesus, you said, whoever lays down his life will have it. God, help us. I'm crying out on behalf of our church for the, because we live in this moment, Lord. We know we live in this moment where everything is polarized. Everyone is drawing lines. May we be a people that says, hey, we stand upon truth. But we will love you no matter what to point you to that truth. I pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.